Hello, and welcome to another African American Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. The New Books Network is a consortium of podcasts dedicated to disseminating new scholarship to academic and non-academic audiences. I'm your host, James West, and joining me today will be Benjamin Fagan to talk about his new book, The Black Newspaper and the Chosen Nation. Dr. Fagan is an assistant professor in the Department of English at Auburn University, where he teaches courses on early African American literature and print culture. His work has appeared or is forthcoming in journals such as African American Review, Legacy, American Periodicals, and Comparative American Studies. And he's also received fellowships from institutions such as the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and African Studies, the Library Company of Philadelphia, and the American Antiquarian Society. He's also a member of the Black Press Research Collective, a group of scholars dedicated to making primary and secondary materials related to black newspapers more widely accessible. And at the moment, he's currently collaborating with members of the collective to produce a born digital book that explores transnational literature and the early black press. The Black Newspaper and the Chosen Nation, which is Benjamin's first book, shows how antebellum African-Americans used the newspaper as a means of translating their belief in black chosenness into plans and programs for black liberation. During the decades leading up to the Civil War, the idea that God had marked black Americans as his chosen people on earth became a central article of faith in northern black communities, with black newspaper editors articulating it in their journals. The black newspaper in the Chosen Nation, then, uses the vast and neglected archive of the early black press to shed new light on many of the central figures and questions of African-American studies. And I welcome Benjamin to the show now. Uh, so I'm here today with Ben. Uh, how are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Okay, thanks. Um, so we're going to be talking about your book, uh, The Black Newspaper and the Chosen Nation. Just before we start, um, if you'd like to kind of introduce yourself to our listeners and just uh, maybe give a brief bio or your kind of career, uh, career to date. Sure. Well, I'm a Midwesterner uh, by uh, being raised, I suppose. I grew up outside Chicago and uh, I went to college at the University of Iowa. Um, which is this wonderful, huge public institution with a really good English department. And um, there I really discovered early newspapers and early American newspapers and was introduced to them um, by a professor named Kathleen Diffley. Um, And from there I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia, which has another really strong um, Americanist presence, as well as a particularly strong African-American studies uh, core in the English department, and that's where I really developed my interest and love of black newspapers. From there, I was fortunate enough to do a one-year postdoc at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's an independent, private, sort of honorary society slash think tank slash uh, fellowship organization that supports junior scholars writing their their first books, um, first and second books. From there, I went to the University of Arkansas, where I taught for three years, and now I teach at Auburn University. So this project, is this kind of drawn out of what you originally had done as dissertation, or is this a separate project, or how did you come on to doing this uh, particular work? The Black Newspaper and the Chosen Nation does emerge from the dissertation, which was about black newspapers, but... Um, did not have a specific emphasis on chosenness and mm-hmm. black chosenness and did not have much of the um, focus on religion and especially on black Christianity that the book has. So initially, um, I wrote a dissertation that in some ways is similar. It's the same archive of early black newspapers. I focus on the, the same group of black newspapers, um, But it was focused on how these papers are constructing American national identity, which was a very sort of typical hot thing to talk about. Uh, I am also influenced by and trained in American studies. And so I was very interested in the creation of American national identity. And newspapers are often talked about as as, uh, engines of national identity. Um, So that was the emphasis. But when, when I finished that dissertation and started to begin on the book when I was in Cambridge, I was lucky enough to have some readers who said, you know, this is fine, and what you're doing here is just fine, but you really seem to be talking about something much more interesting and different, which is this concept of chosenness. And 
I had been in graduate school encouraged to really focus on and develop the investigation into religion that was in one chapter of the book. But I had resisted that um, because that wasn't my area of expertise. And uh, when we move into religious studies, it's a, you know, it's another whole field and it, I felt out of my depth and, and so, and I just wanted to finish the dissertation. So I, I didn't do that. But once I had time to really immerse myself in um, some of the religious studies scholarship and to focus specifically on this concept of chosenness, then the book really came together. So it is drawn from the dissertation, but it's very different from the dissertation in argument, in style. I rewrote almost every word. It's written in a narrative style instead of, you know, a dissertation. My dissertation was a very sort of clunky thing designed to prove that I knew something about a topic. But this book is designed to tell a story. And so I really learned how to write in the process of writing the book. Okay. Um, if you could uh, talk a little bit more about this concept of, of chosenness or black chosenness, because it obviously underpins um, the entire book. So if you could just explain a little bit more about what that means and its importance and its importance and use in the kind of newspapers that you're looking at. Absolutely. So this is not my idea. This is an idea that a number of other scholars, um, perhaps most directly someone like Eddie Glaude, who works in religious studies and African-American studies, have written about. Um, and that is the idea that African-Americans in the 19th century, I mean, that's my area of focus, African-Americans in the 19th century and, and before the Civil War um, developed a belief system, I mean, not all, but this is a pre prevalent belief system that uh, they are God's new chosen nation on earth, like the Israelites in the Bible. And that notion of chosenness gets translated from the Israelites in the Bible who are enslaved in Egypt and go through the Exodus story um, into what it means to be the new enslaved population in the world and how that marks a people as specially favored or designated by God. So it's an evangelical Christian notion. And it's very powerful in early African-American literature, spirituality, and newspapers. And so what I explore is how this notion of black chosenness, this notion that um, black Americans are God's chosen nation on earth, is picked up, worked with, um, and applied by black newspapers. So it's not an abstract theological proposition, but rather a plan for how to act in the world and how to advance the cause of black liberation. And this is what the newspapers do, is they translate this abstract, what might be thought of as an abstract notion, into actual plans for living. And I mean, that's what newspapers are so good at, is talking about daily life, is, is bringing concepts and applying them to the world. And that's what these black newspapers do for the most part. There's also black newspapers, and I talk about this in one chapter, that wholeheartedly reject the notion of black chosenness for very particular reasons. Um, but they're still engaged in this discussion about black chosenness and about what it means to be um, a black person in the United States uh, during the uh, the decades leading up to the Civil War. Okay, good stuff. So let's uh, let's go chapter by chapter uh, through the book and we can kind of get into a little bit more detail about some of the kind of editors, publishers and uh, newspapers that you talk about. Um, so you chapter one is, is centered uh, around kind of Freedom's Journal, which is recognized as the, you know, the first kind of the, the dawning of, of the black press in the United States. Um, so if you can kind of talk a little bit more about um, Freedom's Journal um, and the kind of editors and publishers behind it and then its role in this um, spreading this idea of black chosenness. So Freedom's Journal begins in March of 1827. And as you said, um, is largely recognized as the first black newspaper in the United States. It's founded by a group of elite black New Yorkers 
who come together and decide that they really need a voice in the press. So it's impossible to overstate the importance of newspapers in 19th century America. I often think of the newspaper as in the 19th century as television in the 20th, especially second half of the 20th, and the internet of the 21st century. It is the medium, um, the most powerful medium available. And so these black New Yorkers, these elite black New Yorkers say, we want a voice in this medium. We need to be able to talk about our community to white readers and also talk to our community. Um, to black readers. And so it's a, the first publication, first newspaper designed by and for black Americans. And it's edited by two men, Samuel Cornish and John Brown Russworm. And Cornish is designated as the senior editor, and he's a little bit older than Russworm, but b- both of them are relatively young. Russworm's in his 20s, Cornish is in his 30s when they, I believe, when they edit the paper. And they start it in March of 1827. Its offices are in uh, downtown New York. They're sort of around the corner from what it has become famous as the Five Points neighborhood, um, which was the heart of a working class neighborhood, but also a, a, it was an interracial working class neighborhood and, and black elites lived in, in that area. So that's where they start the newspaper. And it runs for roughly two years. Um, before uh, Cornish leaves after six months and then Russworm keeps it running for about two years and then after about a year and a half after that and then he leaves the country actually he emigrates to Liberia and the paper goes away. You So you mentioned there that it's uh, kind of close to five points quite an interracial neighborhood and um, was that something that extended to the editing and publication of Freedom's Journal was, or was this an exclusively black enterprise? The making of the paper the editing, as far as I can tell, although there aren't clear records that I have been able to recover about the printing of it, it is a black publication. But it it doesn't mean there aren't white people working on it, but I don't have, I can't say that with any certainty, unlike some of the later papers like the North Star, which we'll, which we'll talk about. But its location around the five points and the location of these black elites around the five points is really important because the paper is interested in, in um, creating a separation between black elites who are middle-class and middle-class aspirational from their working class neighbors. And so freedom's journal. And I talk about this, uh, this is really part of the core of the first chapter is very much a middle-class publication with a particular class view of the world and of black life in the United States. And it tries to create a distinction between that middle class worldview and the reality of this working class interracial neighborhood, which is loud and boisterous and, and, and chaotic that surrounds both the people who are making the newspaper and the offices of the newspaper itself. In your, in your kind of introduction to the work, you describe the Freedom's Journal as being important in attempting to kind of close this gap or this perceived gap between being chosen and acting chosen. Right. Um, so I, if you can just say a little bit more about um, what that means in terms of how the newspaper functions or its influence, uh, you know, nationally, not just within uh, kind of the Northeast. Absolutely. So... The relationship between Black Chosenness and Freedom's Journal is, as you say, I mean, I argue that it is that Freedom's Journal is the attempt, what Freedom's Journal tries to do is take this idea of being chosen and translate that into a set of behaviors, which is not uh, unique to Freedom's Journal. Black pastors had been doing this for decades already, but this, it's, it's what the newspaper is trying to do as a newspaper. So to say, what does it mean for our behavior as, as a black community, to be chosen. And this is to fulfill the covenant that chosenness brings with it. Chosenness is not, as, as a number of scholars have talked about, is not simply a status, it's an agreement between God and his chosen people that requires the chosen people to do certain things. And what Freedom's Journal does is really focus on what those things are. And in Freedom's Journal's... Uh, um, worldview from its point of view, which is driven by its editors, but 
the paper is more than just the voice of its editors because there are a lot of other people who are writing for it, um, mostly black New Yorkers. From, from this sort of uh, group of people comes a worldview that to act chosen is to act proper. And that's a word that the paper uses. It has a specific connotation and it, it's not all that different from how we might think of it today and that it means to behave in an upright, respectable, and I would put that in both those terms in air quotes, um, manner, to, be, uh, to have a sense of decorum, to uh, refrain from doing certain things in public like drinking, um, but also like having a parade or participating in a parade because these are seen as boisterous working class behaviors by the newspaper. And thus they don't line up with what a, a chosen people should do according to the newspaper. So it applies its own class-based worldview onto, or it sort of combines a class-based worldview and this notion of chosenness and then translates that into a set of behaviors. And those surround most specifically parading and this debate, this is what I talk about in the chapter, this debate over whether or not black New Yorkers should have a parade to celebrate the abolition of slavery in New York in 1827. And Freedom's Journal is absolutely against this parade. Any celebrations that are going to um, invite the possibility of chaos and, and boisterousness are um, condemned by the paper in very strong terms because they do not live up to the uh, requirements of what it means to be a chosen people. Okay, so um, you alluded there to kind of these these notions of, of respectability or or proper or properness, which underpin um, a lot of the uh, journal's uh, content, and, and this is something that um, is not just has class biases, but also has very clear gender biases, uh, and this yes. is something that kind of Evelyn Brooks, Higginbotham, Francis Smith Foster right. people have talked about. So, um, uh, just to kind of uh, within the context, of this is obviously something that runs through your text as a whole. The kind of limits of black chosenness, and it's something that's yep. kind of commit a whole chapter to later on. Um, just within the context of Freedom's Journal, um, how do those limits work in terms of uh, gendered constructions of, of chosenness? That's a very good question. Freedom's Journal is a male-dominated publication, and many of its many of its policies regarding behavior we might read we could read we could fairly read i think as really masculinist of a certain way and applying what we might see as traditional gender roles so that women act in a certain way even when um the the paper for example is uh, covering or i should say even when when black parades are more acceptable. They are parades that are typically the men are marching and the women are watching. Uh, at least this is the way they're written about. Whether that's the actual composition of the parade or not, I'm not sure, but that's the way they're written about. And so it has men at the forefront and women as supporters, but not leaders. And so that is in is some way that the politics of respectability, right, that as, as Higginbotham talks about, have a gendered element. But I also would want to say that while the newspaper does this, and this is something that I try to capture throughout the book, is that newspapers are complex and often contradictory publications. And so at the very same time that Freedom's Journal is making these arguments about the politics of respectability, that are highly gendered, and that someone like Marianne Shad, uh, who I talk about in another chapter, will really launch an attack against um, in, in specifically gendered terms. At the very same time that it's making those arguments, it has a, it has a very interesting um, group of, of, of articles and stories and, and news reports about the uh, prominent place of black women in black activism. And so, for example, Freedom's Journal, and I don't talk about this in the book, but it serializes a short story called Teresa, which is now considered to be the first short story written by an African-American to be published, which is about how black women saved the cause of the Haitian Revolution. So 
I wouldn't want to say, well, the paper is misogynist or the paper eliminates women's voices. It, it doesn't. It's complicated. But its particular vision of black chosenness does line up with what we might expect a politics of respectability to look like in particularly gendered ways. Okay, so following on from that idea of obviously newspapers being complex, complicated organs, um, let's go into chapter two, looking at The Coloured American, another New York-based newspaper. Um, if you can kind of say a little bit about um, The Coloured American, um, how it was formed, how long it ran for, um, and then as you describe it in your book, how it offered readers multiple paths to freedom. So The Coloured American was founded in 1837 and ran until at least the end of 1841. One of the difficulties with black newspapers is that um, oftentimes issues are missing or it's a paper might miss a week or two and it's not always clear if we just don't have the issue or if it wasn't printed. They can be irregular. White newspapers do this too. It's not a particular problem with black newspapers. But a problem with researching the, or a situation with researching the 19th century press. And so... The last extant existing issue of the Colored American that I found is uh, Christmas, uh, December 25th, 1841. But maybe it ran into early 42. It's not exactly clear. It doesn't announce it's, it's folding the way that Freedom's Journal does. It's founded by a man named Philip Bell, who is a black New Yorker who had relationships with people like Samuel Cornish, who started Freedom's Journal. Um, He's, uh, I think I call him in the book, a scion of the black elite. You know, he's the next generation of, of black elites. He comes out of the same community of the people that founded Freedom's Journal. But he founds it with a white man named Robert Sears, who's a white Canadian uh, printer and bookseller. And Sears is a very interesting character about whom we know very little. Uh, he comes from Canada to New York sometime in the 1830s as a young man, establishes a printing business um, and ultimately becomes an, a wildly successful printer and book publisher um, to the point that when he dies and Publishers Weekly um, prints his obituary, they credit him uh, with inventing modern advertising. Uh, I don't know if that's true. That's what his obituary says. Um, so... He, he, he's this very fascinating figure and doesn't appear in accounts of abolitionism or uh, sort of New York activism that I've found, at least. And so I'm not exactly, exactly sure how Sears and Bell get together, although I have a suspicion that Sears is connected to local white anti-slavery activists that Bell is also connected to, and they point Bell to Sears because Sears is before anything else a printer, and Bell needs a printer. So these two men start this paper, which they initially titled The Weekly Advocate. It runs for a couple months um, with Bell listed as variously as proprietor um, and, or as general agent. Sears is always listed as printer. Um, it looks like for a little while there's a, a group of black men, a community of black men who are overseeing the paper, although it's not crystal clear who these people are, but they're listed on the masthead. But within a couple months, Samuel Cornish, editor of Freedom Journal, comes back, steps in, and takes over the paper as editor. Bell and Sears remain on the staff um, for a while until 1840 when Charles Ray, who is a, a Unitarian minister and black activist in New York, um, or Congregationalist, excuse me, not Congregationalist minister and black activist in New York um, comes in and um, becomes editor and sole sort of control. He, he, he adopt, he, he, uh, over to, he takes over the paper. And I don't, it's, I don't mean that in a hostile way, although there is some hostile writings in the paper about um, his relationship with Cornish uh, and Bell after he, he assumes control, but he becomes the sole editor for 40 and 41. Sears is still involved uh, in some way, but probably not printing the paper anymore. So that's the basic sketch of, of how the paper is produced. Okay. Um, and you, uh, so in relation to um, 
themes that kind of dominate uh, the newspaper. You, you kind of say it's quite difficult to, to summarise it, but um, there's this idea of millennialism uh, which runs through um, a lot of its content. So if you could just kind of talk a little bit about uh, what you mean uh, by this term millennialism and how that applies uh, to, or you can relate it to this idea of black chosenness. So in the 1830s uh, and 1840s, millennialism becomes a very powerful force in America, in the United States. And that is the idea that um, God is, is either has or, well, no, that God is going to return, that Christ specifically is going to return to the United States relatively soon, is, is the general idea. And that will either create a, a, uh, a massive break with society, it will be apocalyptic, it will be um, uh, devastating. He will erase all of uh, man's institutions and start new, and we will have a millennium of peace. Or um, that will come about because uh, people on earth will have created a perfect society, and then Christ will return. So these are, are thought of as pre- and post-millennium positions. They're not as uh, opposed or separate as I may have portrayed them, they overlap in really important ways, but scholars who talk about millennialism typically talk about them in pre- and post-millennial ways. So one is a vision of an apocalypse, and one is a vision of society being reformed uh, through uh, man's actions. So we perfect ourselves, and then Christ returns. The other one is we're so bad that Christ returns and wipes out um, human institutions, and, and then we start over. So these ideas become very powerful in the United States through a variety of, of means, through publications, through newspapers, through pamphlets, through um, preachers, through itinerant preachers who are traveling around, the most famous of which is probably William Miller, who founds the Millerite sect, um, who proclaims that, or predicts that uh, Christ will return sometime in 1843. Um, that doesn't happen. Called, it becomes called the Great Disappointment, but the Millerites move on. And the colored American is, is engaging in these notions of millennialism. And the way it applies to black chosenness is that the group that is going to either lead the reform efforts or survive the oncoming apocalypse is going to be God's chosen people. And so black Americans have a particular role to play in the millennium either in bringing it about through reform or in sort of being the people who start over. And there's a particular American vision of this millennialism that white Americans have as well, that our Americans are God's chosen people. And what the colored American does is explore how black Americans are in particular God's chosen people and have a special role to play in this millennial uh, expectation and creation. And so this is how the paper offers its readers multiple paths to freedom. It is neither a pre nor a post millennialist newspaper. What it is is a newspaper that offers both pre and post millennialist versions of millennialism. And so it tells its readers, look, we can help reform the United States into a better place by uh, abolishing slavery, by working on temperance, the temperance is a big part of the newspaper, um, although I don't talk about this so much in the book. And so we need to work on um, fixing this country, and so we need to work on getting the vote for black Americans, and so it becomes very interested in getting the vote for black Americans. And it ha holds out this optimistic idea that perhaps there won't have to be some apocalyptic break, the nation will be reformed, will be perfected that way, but black Americans will have a particular role to play in that. At the same time, it says, while you're doing these things, if they don't work, if we can't reform the country, then there's going to be uh, uh, an apocalyptic break. And since we're God's chosen people, God is going to come down and or Christ is going to come and, um, and save us for, and liberate us from slavery in the same way. Um, and this is what I talk about in the paper that or it, in a way that echoes how. Um, the Israelites were freed from Babylon. So this, that Babylon is destroyed, it's destroyed by an army, 
and this is God intervening to save his chosen people. And so the, the, the newspaper starts to make a lot of uh, connections between the Israelites and Babylon and black Americans in the United States, all within the larger rubric of millennialism. But it can hold both these ideas simultaneously, reform and apocalypse. Both could be possible. So it's not telling people don't do anything, just wait for the, for the apocalypse and we'll be fine. But it's also not telling people, look, if you get discouraged by reform, if it's not happening as quickly as we want, then we have no we have no options. We're just going to end up enslaved forever. It has multiple ways to freedom. And I think that's something that's so interesting and really uh, uh, hopeful about the newspapers, that it's trying out different ways and giving people multiple options for liberation. So um, picking up on the theme of slavery and specifically abolition, moving into the next chapter, which is um, both probably the newspaper and, and the figure that um, listeners will be most familiar with, and that is uh, Frederick Douglass and the North Star. Um, so in, t- in terms of this newspaper and the North Star, in what ways do you see it as a progression from the first two newspapers that you talk about? Well, the North Star is picking up and developing and in some ways complicating the idea of acting chosen that Freedom's Journal pushes so heavily and propriety being a part, proper behavior, being a part of acting chosen. It develops that notion. Uh, The North Star develops that notion. And it's also engaging with this idea that the colored American puts forth that there is something particularly American about black chosenness, that it's black American chosenness, that that black Americans are part of God's chosen people or are God's chosen people because they are Americans, in addition to the fact that they are black. Um, The North Star complicates that notion because, as I talk about in the newspaper, it is specifically transatlantic in its formation and in the way it views the fight for black liberation in the United States. So what the North Star is trying to do is connect black Americans in the United States to a larger transatlantic revolutionary moment, that is the moment of 1848 and the the revolutions rocking Europe in 1848, and in doing so, connecting black Americans to a, a, a larger community of oppressed people. Um, And the North Star, my argument is that in doing that, it really upends this notion of American chosenness. There's still a black chosenness, but it is no longer exclusively American. There is something particular that black Americans can do um, in the fight for black, in the fight for global liberation, according to the North Star. And that is that, 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 this is what the paper says, that black Americans are particularly well suited to bring together and and combine multiple approaches to liberation, violent and nonviolent, in order to create the ideal way to move forward, um, the ideal way to uh, obtain uh, freedom. And that is, and this is what I, I mean, this is how I read the newspaper, that is again through proper behavior, which can seem very counterintuitive, that what's revolutionary about acting right. But this is what the newspaper is saying, is that if you act chosen, there's actually, this is, this is part of a larger revolutionary movement erupting across Europe, across the Caribbean. And the way we get it into the United States is not by going to the barricades the way they would do in Paris. Um, it's by acting a certain way. And the newspaper is uh, um, fairly convinced that this is going to be an effective revolutionary path. So one of the things I say in the chapter is that what the North Star does is make acting chosen and uh, um, a revolutionary act and really reframe respectability as revolutionary, which seems quite counterintuitive. So um, picking up on this idea of the uh, North Star being a transatlantic paper, um, certainly 
seems to be more uh, diasporic in its orientation than the two papers that you talk about in the first two chapters. Um, so connecting both to revolutionary struggles in Europe, so if it's in France or the Chartist movement in England, um, you also, 1847, of course, you have the uh, Declaration of the Independence of Liberia. Um, so how does uh, Douglas and then other contributors um, look to frame this in terms of black nationalist intent or kind of early development of black nationalism in the 19th century? Black newspapers are often um, held up as kind of arbiters for the spread of black nationalism. Um, so William Julius Wilson, people like that, um, mm-hmm. have, have talked about this this idea. Conventionally, people talk about that in relation to kind of the uh, Negro world or the Chicago Defender in the early 20th mm-hmm. century. So I just was wondering in what ways you can see this kind of transatlantic notion of, of black chosenness uh, that gets talked about or expressed through the North Star in what ways that might be connected or be seen as a precursor to those later periodicals uh, by people such as Marcus Garvey um, in the early 20th century. I think that a paper like the Weekly Anglo-African is actually more a precursor to the pan-Africanism of later papers than the North Star. And the reason is that the North Star is, and part of this is particular to Douglas, but part of it is particular to the composition of the North Star. The North Star is a newspaper that I classify as a black newspaper because um, I think it imagines itself that way, but is actually complicated in terms of that definition of calling it a black newspaper. And the reason is, is the number and influence of white people on the paper, and especially white people from the British Isles. So the paper is very international in its composition. And so Douglas finances the newspaper with British capital. He raises the money for it while he's in the British Isles after he's published the 1845 narrative and he both goes to, to sort of expand upon his celebrity, but also because he's fleeing uh, slave catchers who are coming after him. So he's in the British Isles for a little while and he raises this money for the newspaper. And so it's, it's specifically British capital. American abolitionists who could have helped with the newspaper, people like William Lloyd Garrison, refuse because they don't think Douglas should be a, a newspaper editor. They, think, they don't think he should be a writer. They think he should go around and, and talk for them. And there are particular racial politics about that that are upsetting. So he starts it with, racial cap- with, with British capital, excuse me, and uh, one of the m- most important early uh, contributors to the paper is a man named John Dick. And John Dick is this Scottish printer who comes over in 47 um, to, to work with Douglas on the North Star and becomes um, influential in the paper, writes a number of, of editorials and may very well be editing the paper at at various times when Douglas is away, Delaney, who was a co-editor, Martin Delaney, who was named as co-editor of the paper, who was often called the father of black nationalism, is, is not present in Rochester. He's not actually editing the newspaper. He's off getting subscriptions. Um, William C. Nell, the publisher, uh, is involved in some of the editing, but it looks like he and Dick may be working together, or maybe Dick is working more. So we have this very powerful white British presence. And then we have Julia Griffiths, um, uh, an English woman who uh, there's been a lot written about Griffiths and Douglas. They have a relationship of some sort and um, she is the business manager, becomes the business manager of the North Star and then the business manager and literary editor of Frederick Douglass's paper. So all of which is to say the transatlantic view of the North Star is also interracial and that complicates uh, attempts to locate that paper as the be- as a precursor or, or as part of a lineage of black nationalists. I don't think it makes it impossible, but it means that we have to think very hard about what a black newspaper is and what it does and its relationship to other black newspapers. And half of Douglas's readers um, live outside the United States. 
and mostly in the in the British Commonwealth in Canada and in the British Isles. So he's writing to them as well. So the the paper takes this. Um, it, it's certainly speaking to black readers, and it's certainly speaking to black readers internationally. It wants to be read um, by black readers across the world. I think that's something that Douglas does have, but he uh, have as, it, as a plan. But he also needs to talk to his white readership, which are the people that are 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 he knows are reading the paper. Um, so while he's he is engaging with events in the Caribbean, and I talk about this in in my chapter how what Douglas is trying to do or what the North Star is trying to do is bring together events in Europe, events in the Caribbean and events in the United States into this Atlantic 1848. We don't want to go, we don't want to forget about the presence of uh, white contributors and white readers, not in order to, to say, well, this paper has, is not a black perspective, but to say that um, this black perspective is, is flavored by, or is, is contributed to, by an, an interracial perspective. And that makes it fascinating and complicated and hard to he may be able to tell, hard to talk about in, in particularly clear terms. Um, but it's part of what makes the North Star such a, a, an important uh, publication to look at. And Douglas, such an important figure to look at, is that he, he resists being put in some of the categories that we want to put him in. And so does, so does the newspaper. So this idea of black chosenness, obviously, as as you've been explaining, uh, complicated in terms of being interracial, um, at least in relation to the newspapers that you talk about. Um, also, let's let's return uh, to this subject of, of gender again. Um, chapter yeah. four uh, focuses on Marianne Shad and the provincial freeman. Um, and this is uh, the chapter where you really talk most about the kind of limits of black chosenness and the way in which it's kind of quite masculinist. Um, in its in its formation and certainly in the way that it's produced and the kind of people who are dominating uh, black print culture during this this period. Um, so if you can kind of talk a little bit about um, both Marianne Shad and the provincial freeman, um, just give listeners a bit of an introduction into um, both Shad and the paper, and then talk about how this paper can highlight some of the limitations of black chosenness, as you explain. Great. I mean, this is a chapter of the book that is is one of my favorites because it complicates all the ideas of the book, and that sort of, that to me highlights how fascinating and interesting, and how much more there is to be said about black newspapers and black chosenness than than just what I've been able to say in this 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 one volume. And it really does come from Marianne Shad and her take on the limitations of very male-dominated U.S.-based black activism. So Marianne Shad is a black woman um, from Delaware, originally, uh, educated in Pennsylvania. She's well-educated, highly educated, becomes a school teacher, um, is part of a black activist family. The Shads have a lineage of black activism. Her father... Uh, Abraham Shad is present at a number of the colored conventions and is a prominent uh, black leader and black activist. So she is brought up amongst black activism. And uh, at a, she begins writing, she writes uh, some letters to newspapers. She writes into the North Star and, uh, and is published by Douglas. She, uh, also um, writes a pamphlet on black propriety that is not doesn't we, we don't we don't have any copies of it so we don't we don't know exactly what she said um, but it caused some controversy in in Philadelphia apparently and and my, I suspect that it caused controversy in the same way that Freedom's Journal caused controversy when it tried to tell its black readers what to do. And a number of those readers said, we, we'd really prefer you not tell us what to do. And I, I think that Shad may have run into that same resistance. And then in 1850, she emigrates to Canada. She decides that freedom for black Americans in the United States is not going to come in the United States. And Canada is, um, because of the abolition of slavery in the British Commonwealth in, or in the British Empire, uh, Canada, which happens in 1834 and 1838, Canada 
is a place where you can be black and free. And if you get to Canadian soil, you can be free. And a number of free northern African-Americans in the United States decide to emigrate. Um, so it's not just enslaved people who are running to Canada, and we have numbers of stories of those, but also free African-Americans who, who make the decision that um, our rights are not going to improve, our lives are not going to improve, and, and staying in the United States, in fact, uh, hampers the cause of black freedom. This is Shad's argument. So she goes to Canada and relatively quickly founds the provincial freeman because she doesn't believe that black Canadians have a, uh, an appropriate voice in the black press and in black activism. Now, there is a black Canadian newspaper, The Voice of the Fugitive, edited by Henry Bibb, and she clashes in very public and um, harsh ways the, with Henry Bibb, and, and they, they write, he, Bibb writes really terrible things about Shad uh, in his own newspaper. Uh, and um, so she's, she's moving into a world where there is already a black newspaper, but she's directly challenging the authority of that black newspaper and the man who is editing it. And so unlike the earlier papers where you have, um, I mean, there is competition among editors, but they are not founded per se in order to uh, correct um, what is seen as uh, a problem of representation within the black community. That's what Chad is doing. And that shapes, in my reading, that shapes everything about her newspaper and, and about her politics. And so Chad is um, constantly bumping up against black leaders in the United States, black male leaders in the United States who do not want to allow her into the conversation. And she's brilliant and she has, uh, and fearless. And so she calls them on this and she calls them out on her newspaper, in her newspaper. And the way that this relates to black chosenness is that Chad becomes, and this comes through very clearly in the newspaper, very impatient with black activists in the United States who say that there's something special about being American, U.S. American, that, that this, uh, there's, some, that there's some particular value to staying in the United States. She says there's no value to staying in this country. They don't recognize us as, as part of the country, and, and so we're not, and we need to leave. And she clashes with specifically Frederick Douglass, who says that um, racial solidarity that is blackness. What Douglas does is say, I am, a I mean, this is how Shad reads it. Douglas says, um, as a leader of, of, of U.S. black Americans, I'm going to claim and take credit for and, and proclaim myself to be the leader of black people all over the world. And Shad says, that's nonsense. I don't, I don't acknowledge you as a voice of black Canadians, because just because you're black doesn't mean you know what we go through. And so she really uh, upends and challenges what I call these two pillars of black chosenness that are put forth by earlier papers. And that is that there's something special about blackness and that there's something special about Americanness. And Shad says, neither of these things are a given. It's not that she rejects racial solidarity as a path to black liberation. That's not the case at all. She says that that's not enough. Just because you are black doesn't mean you get to speak for my community. Um, she says that just because uh, Douglas is a black man in the United States doesn't mean he has power over her, which he's trying to assert. And so I think all of this um, has everything to do with gender and with her trying to um, establish herself as uh, a voice of black activism and a voice of black Canadians over against the constant objections of a black male leadership, people like Bibb and people like Douglas. And I think that comes through very clearly in her paper and makes it fascinating, makes it really important. Um, it's one of the less known and written about newspapers in uh, the book, um, outside of black Canadian studies and, and people working in black Canadian studies write a lot about Marion Shad, but for folks who are just writing about the black press or writing about um, early African-American studies, sometimes she falls out. And I, and I think that she's just such an important 
person to focus on, and the Provincial Freeman is a fascinating, wonderful publication to to really dive into. So you finish up the book uh, in chapter five. You re- you return to New York um, on the kind of outbreak of the Civil War, and you're focusing on the weekly Anglo African, uh, which kind of pretty much runs throughout the entire of the Civil War. Um, and what's interesting about this this paper um, is that it's it's kind of really the first wartime paper that that you look at, um, at least kind of domestically. Um, so in terms of uh, both its the weekly Anglo American's relationship to the Civil War. Um, and its editors. Um, how does the conflict affect this this idea of black chosenness as expressed through the weekly Anglo-African? So the weekly Anglo-African, you're absolutely right. It's the one wartime paper that I look at. And there are other black newspapers being printed at, at during the war. The, the other big one would be the Christian Recorder, um, which I talk about a little bit in my epilogue, but I focus most intently on the weekly Anglo-African, which is edited by Robert and Thomas Hamilton, who are uh, two brothers and are black New Yorkers. So you're right, we've returned to black New York. And and they are, again, part of that community of people who have been creating black newspapers since 1827. Their father, William Hamilton, is part of the same generation and the same small group of people, uh, who small community who found Freedom's Journal in 1827, Robert and Thomas both work for the Colored American. So they're steeped in the black press and they're steeped in, in the black newspaper. And they are perhaps the first real, um, well, I don't know about that, but they, they are uh, more than many of the figures, newspaper men. I mean, this is uh, how they come up. And this is, Philip Bell is, is in many ways a newspaper man too, but they're not um, people whose main profession or something else who happen to be editing a newspaper. The initial printing of the Weekly Anglo-African begins in 1859, and then um, it goes dark in 1860-61 and comes back. And I focus mostly on this second iteration of the Weekly Anglo-African, and uh, which then runs until 1865, um, sort of deep into 1865, really up to the end of 1865. And I focus mostly on those four years, on the war years of the paper. So it does begin a little bit earlier, but in a, in a different iteration. So the paper really begins in 61, and um, its position on the relationship between black chosenness and the United States changes as a result of the progress of the war and the shift in union policy towards enslaved people. And so in the beginning, in 61 and 62, the newspaper uh, hosts a series of debates over whether or not black men should begin military training in order to enlist in the Union Army. And in 61 and 62, black men are not allowed to enlist in the Union Army. But there are a number of black activists who say that they will be eventually, and, and the job of of Black men is to prepare themselves for the moment when they will be called upon to uh, join the army. And the title of the chapter is Joining the Chosen Army. Um, so the moment they will be called upon. So it's they host these debates about military preparedness. And some black activists say, absolutely, we should do this. And some say, this is a terrible idea. Why would we do this? Um, the United States is never going to accept this anyways. The, the, this the U.S. is not the, the uh, force for black liberation. Um, and so the debate becomes one about uh, whether or not black men, even if they engage in military preparedness, are preparing themselves to join the Union Army or are preparing themselves to be a different kind of force, one that is going to be on the side of the slave no matter what the government says. Um, an independent operation that could be connected to the union cause, but maybe not if the union decides that it's not actually going to be a force of black liberation. And these are the debates that come up in the newspaper. But by 1863, you have the Emancipation Proclamation. You have the uh, formal admission of black soldiers into the Union Army. And the weekly Anglo-African starts to pivot. It, it, what it says is, no, now we do... we. We want to join the army. And so black military preparedness, we should still do that. That's a wonderful idea. And we should then 
form companies and um, and offer them to the government and sign on to the project of the United States. And so it looks like with the Emancipation Proclamation, the United States of America has finally decided that it's going to be a force for black freedom and black equality, that um, this nation that in the 1830s and 40s may have been um, more akin to Babylon than anything else is now, you know, we can almost read this uh, version of millennialism where it is now being reformed. And so it's now safe for black Americans to join into the cause of, of U.S. nation building, nation formation, and really adopt a U.S. American national identity as a part of black chosen identity. And so that's the move that the newspaper makes and, um, and seems to really endorse the cause of the United States because in this moment, really 63 to 65, the cause of the United States and the cause of enslaved African-Americans looks like it's the same thing. And, and the, the, the paper kind of rejoices and celebrates that fact and, and advises its readers to, um, to have faith that the U.S. is now uh, an ally rather than an enemy. So that faith um, at the end of the Civil War almost immediately starts to be undermined uh, during Reconstruction. And your conclusion, uh, the kind of subtitle is The Ends of Black Chosenness. And um, just in, in kind of summarizing, summarizing your text um, through the conclusion, um, in what ways is this the end of, of black chosenness as, as you express it? Um, is this due to kind of a realization that kind of entrenched inequalities will still exist for black citizens in the United States? Is this to do with kind of editorial shifts within kind of black print culture? Um, how do you kind of frame that end of black chosenness? I'm trying to play a little bit with ends, right? So in some way, in one way, I mean uh, the uh, purposes of black chosenness, uh, the goals, and in the other way, I mean the sort of terminal ending. And the way in which this, this works in my conclusion is that in 1865, in the Weekly Anglo-African and in the Christian Recorder, you have... Um, arguments between uh, black writers, many of them black soldiers, especially in the Christian Recorder, writing in to the paper and saying, we are not being treated the way we're supposed to be by this U.S. government, because the U.S. government does not initially, and for a while, pay black soldiers the same as it pays white soldiers. It doesn't have equal pay. It doesn't treat them the same. It, 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 it's incredibly discriminatory in its policies and black soldiers say we're not being treated right uh, by the government. We really doubt whether or not um, the U.S. is uh, is this force for black liberation that we thought it was going to be. And can, and can we trust it or do we need to go back to an earlier form of black chosenness that says that black Americans are God's chosen people who might be working with the United States, but may also be those who survive the eradication of the United States? Do we need to move back to that sort of, of tension? And, and some writers, some black soldiers write in to the Christian Recorder uh, these letters, and in editorials and in, in other letters from other black soldiers, the, the, the editors of the Christian Recorder and some other black soldiers say, you need to be quiet that we are no longer, uh, this, this um, proclamation of dissent is dangerous. We have signed on with the, with the U.S. The U.S. is our ally now. And to disagree loudly, openly, publicly with uh, and complain about U.S. policy is, viola is getting in the way of the cause of black freedom. This is what I mean by one of the terminations of black chosenness, this, 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 declaration that these earlier versions of black chosenness that questioned the validity of the United States as the rightful representative 
political representative of God's chosen nation are no longer valid, in fact, dangerous, and need to be shut down within black communities. There are black voices talking to other uh, black Americans. Um, but at the very same time that that is happening, you have people writing in to black newspapers like the Weekly Anglo-African saying, even in 1865, they can see that Reconstruction isn't going to work really well because you have a, a you know a black farmer who's a former slave from Tennessee writing in and saying the Union is coming in here and telling us that we have to go back and work the land that where we were enslaved and work for our former masters. Like now we're going to get paid, but this isn't what we want to do. I don't, I don't want to do that, and I'm being forced to. And he has this wonderful line where he says, um, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says that it. It, it seems like the ethics which is to prevail is that it was better to be, you know, I'm not going to paraphrase, I'm going to look it up, because <laughs> it's, um, it's worth getting uh, his words exact. This is um, Samuel Childress, who's from Tennessee, and he says, it would seem that it was regarded as a greater crime to be black than to be a rebel. And then he says, if this is the ethics which is to prevail, then we have more judgments in store for the nation. And I think that's really powerful because it, it anticipates so much of, of the, these entrenched inequalities and the tension of um, a black politics and a black response to these entrenched inequalities when the United States is now supposed to be the vehicle for black freedom, but it isn't. And what do you do with that? Because prior to... Uh, the Civil War and prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, there was a much more forceful articulation of uh, the dangers of the U.S. and the possibility that the U.S. is not the rightful uh, American chosen nation, that there will be a different one, that it's not the natural uh, you know, government of the land that we call the United States, that's constructed, that's a political entity, and that it, there could be a different one. And, and imagining those alternatives. And that becomes more difficult after the war, um, or more contested, I would say, uh, it seems, after the war. And so I think that the, the ends of black chosenness is that this, uh, I'm not at the end of the book saying black chosenness ends. It doesn't. I mean, we still have rhetorics and, uh, of black chosenness everywhere. Um, once we just start to sort of be open to hearing them, uh, we hear them everywhere. It's not that it vanishes by any means. It's that the force of a particular kind of black chosenness that is open to the idea of alternative futures, alternative American futures, um, is muted for a period. Now, my book ends in 1865. If we move to 1880, we might find a different story. So I'm not saying that then this is the way it is forever, but in this, it becomes muted uh, um, immediately after the war because people like these writers to the, the, the uh, Christian Recorder and like the editors, you know, there's, it seems like the United States will be the best vehicle and they don't want to jeopardize that. It will be the best vehicle for black liberation and, and they don't want to jeopardize that and, and sort of um, handicap it right in the beginning. Well, we might not have uh, reached the end of Black Chosenness, but I think we've probably reached the end of this interview now. Um, but thanks very much for talking to our listeners today, Ben. Um, just to finish, um, if you'd like to let people know um, any anything that you're currently working on um, and also where people can find your work. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I've published work in... Uh, Academic journals like Legacy, which is the Journal of Society for the Study of American Women Writers. Um, I publish in American Periodicals uh, and African American Review, and um, we'll have some pieces. Have a piece coming out in Legacy uh, later this year in in December, and I'm also working on um, some chapters for edited collections uh, dealing with topics. Uh, like the relationship between colored conventions and black newspapers and 
um, dealing with uh, some of the serialized novels that appear in black newspapers that I touch on in the book, but looking more closely at that. And I'm beginning another uh, uh, book project um, on the black press. Uh, my interests extend beyond it, but I have another book project on the black press looking specifically at Frederick Douglass's paper and for correspondence to his newspaper, because this is a paper that I don't treat in in my book and um, is complex and wonderful and incredibly influential and that we know very little about. So I'm going to, to try to grapple with that paper just by looking closely at four letter writers who write for him um, over a period of years. All right. Thanks very much for your time today, Ben. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. You've been listening to the New Books Network African-American Studies podcast with me, James West. Funding for the New Books Network is provided by Amherst College Press. For more information, go to newbooksnetwork.com where you can subscribe. Alternatively, follow the New Books Network on Twitter and Facebook. Goodbye.